Welcome to the Forerunner Church Podcast, where we highlight key messages and themes related to the body of Christ, inviting you to connect with our spiritual family as we grow in passion for Jesus and compassion for people. For more information, visit forerunnerchurch.com. Amen. We'll look at Matthew, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Many of you have the teaching notes. You got those on the way in. And just a minute of review. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 16, the confession of Peter, the keys of the kingdom being granted to him, the authority to bind and loose. We talked a little bit about what that meant. And one of the key things that Peter confesses in verse 16, he says of Jesus, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the Lord tells him that that's going to become the rock. That's going to become the declaration and the reality by which he builds his church. So the church of God, the the corporate body of Christ is built upon the declaration that Jesus is the Christ and he is the son of God. And now this is a remarkable statement that Peter is making here because to be the Christ means to be anointed of the father. And I would think that there's many people that think that Jesus was unusually anointed. They may not use that term, let's say, but maybe he was gifted. He was an incredible teacher, you know, and he did miracles and he cared for the poor. And so he was unique. I mean, he really stood out in terms of, of history. I think that there's many Christians today that see Jesus as anointed, but they don't see the second part, which is really part of the foundation of the apostolic gospel, that he's the son of God. Because the statement that this man, Jesus, is the son of God is, has massive ramifications for our lives and massive ramifications for the disciples at that time. Because they're saying, this isn't just a man under the anointing of heaven doing miracles and good works and teaching the Bible in a new way that nobody's heard before. They're like, this man is anointed, but he's also God. He's equal with God. This is a massive statement that Peter is making here, and it becomes the foundation of our faith. What happens in your life when Christ becomes the son of God is very disruptive because now he becomes the center. It's no longer Jesus, the anointed one, helping my life, helping the dynamics of my life, you know, get better and and increase, and I've got a little bit more favor on my life. I got a little bit more money. I've got more opportunities because here it is, this anointed man that's come alongside me to help me achieve my dreams. No, everything now is reoriented. Christ is the son of God, and when you look in heaven, you see that the will of God, the person of God, the very throne of God is at the center of all the activity of heaven, and there's no activity that ultimately matters apart from or disconnected from God being the center and the absolute preeminent one in terms of worship and in terms of the purpose and the meaning of life. And so for the Christian now, 
we come under the authority of God, we recognize, we acknowledge, Jesus, you are the son of God. Now my life is oriented around what you want and what you intend to do and what you teach and what you say, that becomes the object, the direction of my life. You're at the center. I'm on the peripheral. Jesus is not coming alongside my life to just make it better, but rather I'm joining his kingdom and now he is the Lord and I'm subject to him. And so Peter reiterates this in his first message in Acts chapter two. So the day of Pentecost comes, the tongues of fire fall, they're prophesying. Peter gets up and he preaches a message and he says this key phrase in Acts chapter two and verse 36. He says that the father, I'm paraphrasing, but the father has made him this Christ. He's made him, the one that you crucified, he's made him Lord. He has appointed him as the heir of all things and he's to be worshiped and he's to be proclaimed and he's to be obeyed and he's to be loved and enjoyed forever. This is who God is. Now to that day and in the early church, the secular powers, they did not like this message. You know, the, a lot of people think that the core message of the gospel is forgiveness of sins. God loves you so he forgives your sins. But if you say that to religious people or to secular people, that doesn't ruffle their feathers. They're like, so what? Jesus forgives your sin. Caesar, who's in power over the Roman Empire, he does not care that somebody somewhere thinks that some guy named Jesus is gonna forgive their sins. That doesn't disturb him. That doesn't bother him at all. It was a different proclamation that was offensive. It was the proclamation that every power, religious power, political power, was now subject to a Jewish man who a bunch of people were claiming had been raised from the dead. Now they're like, oh my gosh, because now their power has been threatened. Their power is in question. And not only that, not only are these people, these disciples of Jesus proclaiming Christ and following Christ, but they're moving in supernatural power as well. And they're moving in signs and wonders that can't be denied because people are seeing them and they're experiencing them and they're feeding the poor and they've removed classism from, you know, the church, when they would gather together, it was the rich and the poor together and women were allowed in the meeting and slaves were allowed in the meeting and everyone is now equal before God. So this becomes a very disruptive message because you have that reorganizing of the culture in accordance with the gospel of the kingdom. Then you add signs, wonders, miracles, and power to that group then you add humility, and when they persecute them, when they try and do wrong to them, these people, these followers of Jesus, they're just blessing them back. They're like, what is wrong with you guys? They're persecuting them. They're lying about them. They're taking them to court. They're throwing them in prison unlawfully. All of these things are happening, but these people are walking in a spirit of humility and meekness. They're not responding in anger. They're not lashing out. They're not overly defensive and, and trying to get back at their enemies. And when stuff is stolen from them, they're not even caring if it gets back to them or not. 
they are completely different people following a completely different king as a part of an entirely different kingdom. And this became very disruptive. Now, the point isn't to become this disruptive force. That's not our chief objective and our chief aim. But a side effect of Jesus becoming Lord of our life is it will be disruptive because Jesus changes the way that we do everything. He changes the way that we do sexual ethic and practice. He changes the way we do money and finances. He changes, the way, he changes the way we do power and influence. I mean, he is the upside down, where is this guy coming from? Where are these ideas coming from, God? And it becomes very disruptive. So Jesus Christ is the Lord. And the message for this morning is entitled, Christ the Center. And Paul talks about this reality of Jesus being the center and being Supreme, he uses this term preeminent in Colossians 1. So let's look at this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I just wanna remind us that as Paul is going through this section in this letter to the Colossians, he's not just making doctrinal statements so that we kind of understand with an intellectual mind how we relate to God and all that. He's making statements that are truths about Christ that are meant to unlock our hearts in love and devotion to him. He's making statements that when we really search them out, it awakens a hunger for God and a magnetism towards this person of Jesus. Because here he is, highly exalted. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the exact replica of the Father, the Ancient of Days, the Almighty God. And yet he's coming lowly and he's coming in humility and he's coming in a spirit of meekness and tenderness like we've never seen before. He's drawing people that are hurting. He's drawing them toward him and he's confronting the powers of darkness and evil and perversion. He's confronting them while also being meek and kind. And the point is, is that these truths that are written here in Colossians 1 are meant to awaken love in our hearts for Christ because that's what the knowledge of God does. As we grow in the knowledge of God, it's not that our arguments against people that don't believe what we believe become stronger. That's not the point. As we grow in the knowledge of God, it's our heart is awakened more to the beauty and the attraction and the splendor of who Jesus is. So Paul continues on and he's saying, by him, all things are created in heaven that are, and on earth that are visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things are created through him. And here's the key phrase, all things are created for him. But we won't understand what that means until we see him as Lord, not just Savior, but as Lord, as the supreme preeminent judge of the entire earth. We have to see him as the creator, as the scripture describes him. Then we begin to understand everything that exists, the spiritual realm, the natural realm, powers, principalities, everything that is, exists to bring glory and to bring honor to Jesus because he is now the center of all that is. 
And we've got to, as Christians, our life has to be oriented around this. We have to see him and put him at the center of our lives, of our devotion, of our heart, because he is the one, he's the reason why everything exists that does exist. So Paul continues verse 17. He's before everything, and in him all things they consist or they're held together by his power and by his authority. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead in the resurrection because of his resurrection. And that in all things, and this is what I want us to really fixate on this morning, that in all things, Christ would have preeminence. Christ has preeminence, not just in the structured church gatherings on the weekends or at the Wednesday night Bible study. Christ has preeminence in all things. To be preeminent means that he is the chief. He is the supreme one. He is the center of attention. He's the center of affection. He is the center of devotion and all of history and all of creation is moving towards seeing and acknowledging him as preeminent and as central. And we have to, as a spiritual family, and we are committed to this, we're committed to Christ, Jesus, the person being the central worshiped figure, the adored figure. Without him, none of this means anything. Without an emphasis on him, it doesn't matter. We're just play acting. We're just play acting church. If a vibrant relationship with Jesus is not at the center of all that we do, and if our lives as individuals and families isn't oriented around growing in the knowledge and the obedience to Jesus, if it's not about him, there is no point to what we're doing at all. And Paul is writing the church in Colossae, and you see it repeated throughout the theme of the New Testament. Jesus is the center. Do not lose him. Because in all of our doing as Christians, in all of our needs, we have social needs. We have relational needs. We have needs to be a part of something. We have needs to contribute in some way. We can lose Christ as the center and the purpose for what we're doing. You can go weeks, months, some even go years without recognizing Christ at the center of why they exist and what they're for. And I I mentioned this uh, story last week, but a few years ago, I'm sitting in the prayer room and it's an early morning set. It's it's a Monday morning, I remember it. And I'm just really tired, you know, because the weekend's long and it's like, ah, and I'm like sitting there and, I'm just like, in my heart, I'm complaining to the Lord. I'm like, Lord, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. And I don't like the way things are going. And I don't like the way this sounds, blah, 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 blah. You know, we all have our preferences and stuff. It's like, well, when I go to the prayer room, it's this certain, you know, worship leader. And I don't like the way that person prays. We have all of our, you know, stuff. Let's just be honest. So I'm in my heart and I'm complaining to the Lord. I'm complaining to the Lord and the Lord interrupts me. And he goes, Isaac. And I'm like, yeah. I didn't expect him to talk to me because I was kind of doing a monologue. I wasn't really there for a conversation at that particular moment. So he interrupted my monologue (laughs) and he goes, Isaac, I go, yeah. He goes, this isn't for you. And I was like, 
but Lord, it's 24-7 prayer, and we can come anytime, and it's like a convenience store, you know, and I wake up at three in the morning, and I can't sleep, and I'm like, I know what I'll do. I'll go to the prayer room, and you know, it's just so convenient. It's, it's available in between my schedule. You know, I'm driving by, and I'm like, oh yeah, the prayer room, go in, and he goes, this isn't for you. This is for me, and I was like, it was so obvious. I was like, oh yeah. I'm not here to just get something from you to go do the real stuff and what I really care about outside. That's the way a lot of believers, they relate to Jesus. They relate to a prayer meeting or a worship time or a service. They, they're in our hearts. I mean, we're sincere, but in our hearts, we're like, how was it for you? How was it for me? How did I experience it? And if I didn't like it, I'm not in, I'm not in it anymore. And, that, and the Lord's going, no, 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 no. If you have that posture towards a spiritual community or a church body or whatever it is, if, if you're there for you, you're missing the entire picture of what's going on. The body of Christ is being built up into a temple, into this corporate body of love and affection, of adoration for Jesus. It's for him. And the prayer room, you know, our little prayer room, it's just one example of this. Our prayer room down the road, it's for Jesus. It's not for me. Now, I, I get blessed when I'm there. I got to be in you know, this environment of, of worship and, and prayer and praise, and it sounds good. We got a nice sound system, and, you know, there's nice lighting and comfortable-ish chairs in there. And, you know, we're in there, and we're like, wow, this is... So there are secondary benefits. There are blessings that I experience being in that, in that prayer room, but that prayer room is not mostly for me. It's mostly to declare the preeminence of Christ, it's mostly to sing and worship him because he's worthy of it, even if he doesn't do anything. You know, the angels that are in heaven, the saints that are in heaven, they're not at the worship service so that God blesses their heavenly mansion down the road and makes the grass grow in places that it's not. They're not just there to receive the benefits of God. They're not praying before him because they're so desperate and so needy that if like, if God doesn't answer, like, oh my gosh, and like, I'm not coming back to this prayer meeting if God doesn't answer in the way that I want. They're there worshiping and praying because of who God is, simply because of who he is. And they see his humility. They see the mercy of God. They see the power of God. They see the wisdom of God. And they're just like, the only way I can respond is I just want to be here singing to you, worshiping you, and adoring you. It's the appropriate response to who God is, to who Christ is. And I think the Lord is gonna shift the body of Christ. I know that he is, because he's very committed to this. Way more than what I'm fumbling through articulating here. Jesus is way more committed to his glory and his honor spreading throughout the nations. And he's looking at the church first and he's going, I want my people to see me as central to what they're doing. I want them to love me from their heart in sincerity, not doing it 
out of lip service, not doing it because it's culturally the correct thing to do. We go to church, we tithe, we go to our Bible studies. No, no, no. We've got to get a vision of the person of Christ and enter in to the reality of what it means that he is God and he is Lord and he's the image of the invisible God and let these things awaken a response in our hearts that is so necessary. In heaven, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he's being worshiped continuously. Now he prays in the Lord's prayer, let your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. Let what's happening in heaven, and not just the what, but the why, the why of heaven, let the why of heaven become the expression of the saints on the earth. The, the why of heaven become the why of the people that are on the earth. Why is he being worshiped day and night? Why is there continuous praise and thanksgiving being made before him? Why? Because that why is very important. That why is very critical. And we want that why that's in heaven to become the why on the earth as we see a whole generation purified and swept into deeper love and adoration of the person of Christ. We know the first commandment. The Lord wants to establish it in first place in the heart of his people. And he is profoundly committed to this in your life. That's what he's after. He's after your heart because when we said yes to Jesus, we got into the covenant, the new covenant of his grace and mercy. And so he goes, part of the new covenant is now I want to awaken love, profound love, deep love, wholehearted love in your heart for my son. And he's gonna allow all the circumstances of our lives to put us in the pressure put us into that refining fire of producing that love for Jesus on the inside. So there's gonna be setbacks, there's gonna be seasons of blessing, there's gonna be heartache, there's gonna be up and down, and all of it creates the optimum environment where the Holy Spirit goes, I'm going to have a wholehearted love in the heart of my bride for my son, Jesus. That is where it's going. He's gonna set Christ as the preeminent one over the whole earth, over the church, I mean, this is a bizarre idea to think that Jesus isn't even preeminent in many parts of the body of Christ, but he will be because he is deeply, deeply committed to this reality. And the truth is, is that to put Jesus second in all we're doing in our church life and in, in our Christian life, to put him second is really to put him last because there's only one place where he is truly honored and it's not second place. He's not to be an afterthought. He's not to be this secondary part where it's like, we're gonna push the social levers in people's heart to fill a room. We're gonna get some worship songs that kind of sing about Jesus, but you know, sing about us. I'm not talking about what we're doing. I'm just mentioning that you know, a lot of the songs out there, they're not even talking about Jesus. They're talking about us. It's like, I'm so this and I'm so that and you know, whatever. I just, wow, I don't know. Like maybe we could sing you know, more about him. Anyways, so here we are, <laughs> we, we could build these structures, we could lay out these services, we could meet people's social needs, we could meet their material needs, we can get a big people, then we could call it a church, but Christ has nothing to do with it. And he's on the outside. And that's what's happening in the church in Laodicea, in Revelation three. They've got all these programs going on, they've got all this money 
and these resources and they're helping the poor and they've got the cool worship band and they're like, they're going for it. And Jesus, there's a knock at the door. Like who could be out there? I don't know. And they go and they look at the people on the door and they're like, who is out here? It's Jesus. He's on the outside. Why? He's not preeminent in the heart of these people. They've allowed the secondary things of their lives, their prosperity, their money, their influence. They've allowed the culture to become their gods. And they don't want Jesus as their God. And they didn't even realize it. And the Lord comes to them in such kindness and he goes, I, I, I gotta tell you the truth. You know, I gotta tell you how I'm experiencing you, you know, bride. He's like, I'm on the outside. Your love toward me is lukewarm. You've shut me out. You can, you can successfully do church without me. I mean, think about this, successfully doing Christianity without Christ at the center. If our lives, beloved, if, our, if we can do the Christian life and, and have that reputation and people look at us and be like, wow, you're such an incredible Christian. If we can do the Christian life without a profound dependence upon the person of Jesus, we're doing it all wrong. We've got it massively wrong. And I've said this a number of times, but you know, you got a mission statement up on the wall for your church ministry or whatever it is. If you can accomplish that mission statement just through gifted people and millions of dollars in the bank account, the vision is too low. It's not the vision of the church because the church, the mission of the church cannot be accomplished without Jesus at the center and a profound dependence upon him in order to make his name known and fulfill the great commission. It's impossible. So we've got to get a higher vision. We've got to get a vision of the Lord. Now, I love this in Acts 11, verse 26, because in the early church, they didn't call Christians Christians, not initially. They were called followers of the way. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so inevitably, that name kind of stuck. They were disciples of Jesus who followed the way. And they began getting called Christians here at Antioch in a derogatory way. And people were like, you know, those people over there. They're like, what group? They're like, oh, you know, that Christian group over there. And they were using it as a, in a derogatory manner. But I, I love it because Christian means a Christ man. It means a person that is devoted and follows the ways of Jesus. And it's like them saying, this is a made up conversation, of course. It's like them saying, you know what really bothers me about those Christians over there? Like, what's that? They're just like that Jesus Christ guy. I don't like that. I, I would appreciate if people didn't like Christians because we were more like Jesus. Unfortunately, people don't like Christians for a whole host of other reasons. They don't like our tone. They don't like our style. They definitely don't like our music. They don't like lots of things. We're weird. We're mean. We're like, you know, cranky towards people. I mean, whatever. Like all the different reasons why people don't like us. But in Antioch, they were like, those people over there, they're like Christ. I don't like that. Like, let that be our testimony. Let that be the ship that we sink on right there, is that a people were so filled with Jesus, so obedient to his word, that the secular groups, they didn't like it. The religious groups, they didn't like it. That we were a gospel-oriented people 
with Christ at the center and saying, this is the hill I'm dying on, him. His worth, his beauty, his majesty, he's the only way and he's the Lord of all the earth. Like that's the hill that we wanna die on as believers. The Lord has a plan to deliver his people out of lukewarm love because there's people that are, you know, really, there's a group that's on fire for the Lord. There's a group that's kind of cold and getting more and more distant from the Lord. But then there's a big group, I would say, perhaps the majority, that just lukewarm. They're just along for the ride. They're okay. They've made peace in their heart with just an outward expression and just going through the motions. But Jesus isn't the center of their own heart. And I don't know what's at the center. It's a, probably a lot of different things but the main pursuit of their life hasn't been the person of Christ. It's some secondary thing. It's some reputation, it's some opportunity, it's their job, it's their relationship, it's their whatever it is, but Christ hasn't become preeminent in their heart. And Paul is exhorting the church here in Colossians. He's going, Christ is all in all. You guys, if we get a vision for the majesty of Christ, not only will our life be transformed, but the very thing that we long for of meaning, purpose, being received and not rejected, walking without guilt and shame, feeling pleasure and joy and delight that God actually, that he permits, that he's made within the human experience in accordance with his law. If we do things God's way, he goes, I will answer the cry of your heart in so many different ways. But so many people are lukewarm. They're half in and half out. So they live tormented. They live dull. They live dissatisfied. They're a little bit cranky. You know, they become a little bit petty. That's one of my personal big issues. You know, just full vulnerability. I just get really petty about stuff. And the Lord's like, Isaac, just realign your heart before me. Put me at the center See me in the way the prophets describe me and the way I'm described throughout the gospels in the New Testament. Let that information awaken something in your heart. We need revelation, which brings me to this next point here. The central goal of the Christian life is God. Without him, nothing else matters. Heaven is only good because God is there. Jesus is only good because of who he is in his person. It is not enough to just have the blessings of God in our life without the person of God at the center. It is, that is not enough. That is selling ourselves so short because then our relationship with God becomes transactional and we've got this transactional relationship with God. So it's like, I give you my devotion. I give you my time. I give you my money. Then you have to bless me in these ways. But if God doesn't hold up his end of the bargain, if he doesn't answer my prayers, if he doesn't turn things around, if he doesn't get me out of debt, if he doesn't, if he, if he, if he, if he, if he, all this stuff, we've realized we're now in this transactional relationship with God. That's, a, that's not a good place to be. Jesus didn't die for us to relate to him like he was this transactive, you know, I serve you, then you serve me back. That's what the idols did. That's why the nation of Israel fell into idolatry. That's why the nations did idolatry so much because it was transactional. I bring my offering to the idol and then they answer the cry of my heart, whatever that is. And the Lord goes, I'm not an idol. I'm not Baal. I'm not your master. 
He goes, I'm your husband. That's what he tells Hosea, the prophet. I'm your husband. I want this interaction with you. I want a deep life with you. I want you to know me in the way that I know you. And that has to become the central aim. So the father wants to reveal the son as preeminent to the body of Christ. That's why Paul in Ephesians 1, I have the wrong verse written here, says Revelation 1, but it's Ephesians 1, 17. That's why Paul is praying for believers to grow in the knowledge of God. He's not praying for unbelievers. There's actually very few prayers, listen to this, there's very few prayers in the New Testament for unbelievers. The vast majority of them are for believers to grow in the knowledge of God, to see what already exists, to to be uh, shaken and to be transformed and to move out of cold or, or indifferent love, this lukewarm love, into a vibrant relationship with Jesus. So Paul's praying for the church in Ephesus, and he says, here's what you need. He goes, you're, you're in church. You believe that you're a Christian, but you need something profound. You need my father to reveal the glory of the son to you. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what every believer on the earth needs. We need a spirit of revelation. The spirit of revelation gives us information about Jesus that we did not know before. We awaken to it. Like, oh my gosh, I never knew that about you. I never saw that before in the word. That it's, it's illumination. It's a new thought. It's a new idea. It's, it's a fresh truth from the scripture that maybe you've read a hundred times, but all of a sudden, now it's like fire on the page and you're reading it and your heart is moving. You're going, whoa, I didn't see this before about him. Ooh, I like this. Then the father gives a spirit of wisdom. And what the spirit of wisdom does is the spirit of wisdom tells us how to respond to the revelation that was given. The revelation comes from heaven. The wisdom helps us to walk it out on the earth. So because he is beautiful and glorious, because he's majestic, because he's the firstborn from the dead, the revelation comes, then the spirit of wisdom, I will surrender my heart to you. I will follow you. I'll go the way of the cross. I'll be a disciple of Jesus. I'll pick up my cross and follow you. If you love me this much, that's the revelation, then I will respond. I will reciprocate that love back to you. That's the spirit of wisdom. We're walking it out with him. Now, here's the thing. We pray this prayer all the time in the prayer room, but we barely ever mention this part, verse 19 and 20, which is really important. And it's still in there, you know, just fun fact. Okay, verse 19, he talks about the quality of the power that is released when the father reveals Jesus. He's talking about the quality of the power here. He calls it this, the mighty working power. Now that phrase there that's mighty, mighty working, means that it has the power to overcome resistance to that truth. Our mind is plagued with, with lies, wrong ideas about God, wrong ideas about what he said, what he's done, what he hasn't done, wrong ideas. So when the spirit of revelation comes, it has power from the Father to touch our heart to immediately overcome the resistance to what he wants to reveal to us about Jesus. It has power to overcome. He says, so this 
This power that my Father is releasing, it is mighty, it is glorious, it is profoundly effective on your heart when you ask for it, it is mighty. It has power to overcome the lies, pain in your life, setbacks, bitterness, disappointment, frustration, offense, all these things that often grow up in our lives. The spirit of wisdom comes, the spirit of revelation, bang, it has power to overcome those strongholds, those resistances towards God. Then he goes on in verse 20. He says, matter of fact, this power is so great that it's the same power which the Father, catch this, which the Father worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead. I can't get over that. It's the same power that worked in Christ when Christ was raised from the dead, that seems like a pretty significant power. And the father goes, oh yeah, it is. He goes, I blew the hair back on a bunch of people in Jerusalem when Jesus wasn't in that grave the next day. When he showed up, when over 500 people witnessed his ascension, when he was eating food, I mean, the disciples were like, what? is going on right now. I just saw you die. Now you're out of the grave. They're terrified and confused and happy and they're all over the map. And the religious leaders, the authorities, the secular authorities, they hated this idea that Jesus had been raised from the dead. I mean, it sent shockwaves through Jerusalem and everybody's talking about it. And you know, it's on the National Enquirer headlines and that's not even a magazine anymore anymore. Thank God, you know, but it's shot through. He goes, this same power that raised Christ from the dead, he's alive forevermore. He didn't just come back and then die 20 years later from old age. He's alive forevermore. He goes, that's the same power that the Father is gonna release to your spirit to see Jesus as he truly is, to grow in the knowledge of God. It's the same power. And Part of that's awesome and part of that's kind of an ouch because that means God needs to overcome deadness and unbelief and dullness in my spirit. That's what he's overcoming in me because I don't see Jesus in the way that the father does and that the angels do. I see him so dimly and the Lord goes, I'm gonna overcome the deadness of that low vision of who my son is I'm gonna release a power of revelation on your life that's like bringing life from the dead. It's not just like you're kind of messed up a little bit. We need to mend your broken ankles so that you can walk with me better. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, your understanding of my son is dead. It's a corpse. The only way that thing gets up is if I release the same power that raised my son from the dead, then you can walk in revelation and understanding of who Jesus is in a way that is like being alive when you were formerly dead. He goes, that's the power I'm gonna release. And I want us to, I want us to grab a hold of this because many of you are intercessors and, and you've prayed this prayer, Ephesians 1, many, many times. But I want us to, to think of the significance when we're praying this, when we're praying this over the church in Kansas City, we're praying this over the next generation, we're praying this over believers in Asia or Europe or whatever it is. I want us to connect with, we are praying for the power that raised Jesus from the dead to give the light of understanding and the knowledge of Christ. Why? So that Christ would be preeminent in the heart of God's people. 
so that their heart, their whole life would be about when Jesus is on the throne of my heart, there's no other God, no other idols are allowed to stand in his presence. You can't bring idols into the temple of God and put up the idols, you know, next to the Ark of the Covenant, next to the person of God. You can't do that. They fall on their face. They're broken. They're, they're shattered. They're destroyed. And this is what we have to do as believers. We have to put Christ as the center and say, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to obey your word. I'm going to rejoice in who you are. I'm going to fellowship with you. I'm going to grow in the knowledge of God in my life. But Christ must be preeminent. I'm going to hold on to that. I'm not going to let it go. Look at page two. I want to highlight just one thing because we're out of time here. It's about halfway down under paragraph D. I, I think that the Lord is going to restore in the body of Christ this idea of God as the creator. And those are things we learned, you know, in Sunday school. And it's like, wow, that's, you know, that's important. God's the creator. But there are implications. There are implications. Shut up, Siri. There are implications to God being the creator that we have to wrestle with. Look at this, paragraph D, by him, by Christ, all things were created. Because Jesus is the creator, that means that all things are subject to him and his divine order. And there are people that try and do like a hybrid of Christianity. It's like half, you know, secular view of creation and like half Bible truth. And they kind of like try and meld it. It, it. I don't think it works that way at all. You can't get around the declaration that God created the heavens and the earth. You either have to accept that or reject that. I don't know that there's a halfway hybrid that really works if you're planning to honor the entirety of the word of God. And here's what that means. Here's one of the implications, okay? He has the right, I wanna say this strongly. He has the right to make demands on the earth of humanity in accordance with his desires, with his law. The creator, God, he has the right to define his creation however he wants. He has a right to raise things up. He has the right to tear things down. He has the right to build. He has the right to destroy. He has the full right to do with his creation whatever he wants. This is how Isaiah described it. Look at Isaiah 64. You are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. The potter has the right to do whatever it wants to clay. And if you've ever seen pottery or you've ever done pottery, you know that often the potter will shape the clay, then it will tear it down. Then it will shape it again. Then it will tear it down. And he could create that pot. And once it goes into the kiln, he can use it for whatever he wants. He can use it for honorable things like the cookie jar. He can use it for dishonorable things like the other, you know, jar. He can use, he has a full claim over his clay. And a lot of people stumble over this and they can disagree with it all that they want. But, at, but those that believe the word of God, that believe what God says and the witness of creation, they have to go, there's surrender. You're the potter. I'm the clay. The clay has no claim 
on the potter and what he should do and how he should do it. It can't. It's, I mean, ultimately it's clay. Now we have, we're clay with some mouth and opinions and social media accounts. <laughs> but the clay in this, in this analogy, the clay has no claim. It has no mouth. And that's, that's how we are in the hand of the Lord. So he says, I'm the creator. All things are by me. All things are through me. All things are for me. You're in my hands. But here's the thing. God, the father is the only one with your ultimate good in mind. Because he is so powerful, because he is so wide, he's also intrinsically good and righteous and just. Most people don't want to be the clay in the hand of the potter because the potter abuses the clay. They don't have its best interests in mind. They don't have its redemption in mind. They're not willing to die for that pile of clay. That's absurd. But here's our God. He is unlike any other God. He's unlike any other way. And he goes, if I want you to see me as preeminent over your life. I want you to be subject to me. I, want, I have the right to make claims on your life and ask you of things that you don't want to do. You don't like it. But he goes, if you humble yourself before me, I will meet you with such power, with such joy, with such peace on the inside. You'll have a peace that people won't even understand. How can you have peace under difficult circumstances? How can you have peace under persecution? How can you have peace under trouble? And here's the believer going, you are the potter. I'm the clay. I'm in your hands, Lord. I surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Have the worship team come out. I'm gonna pray this passage over us. For the Father of glory. Father, here we are. Here we are as your children, Lord. We know that you are filled with glory and majesty and beauty beyond compare, beyond what our minds could conceive. You are so filled with light and revelation and goodness and abundance. Here we are. We ask you, Lord, that you would release that power in this spiritual family on the young and old. On the young and old, on men and women, we ask, Lord, for the release of the Spirit of God that would cause us to see Jesus with a greater light, with a greater insight, a spirit of revelation would touch the minds of this community. It doesn't matter if we've been walking with the Lord for 20 minutes or 25 years. Lord, we want more of Jesus in our midst, in our hearts, Lord, in our homes. We want him to permeate all things. We want him to be the all in all in our lives. We ask, Lord, for those, those phrases of truth, those light-filled ideas and revelations of your Son to pierce us, to touch us, to unlock our hearts and our minds. We ask you, God, for a spirit of wisdom on how to respond. What are the areas, Lord, in our lives where we're not responding in a commensurate way to what we know and what we understand? There's some of you, you've had revelation of God there's been past seasons of your life where the Lord's unlocked your heart and you've walked in a spirit of revelation with him and your, life was, your heart was flowing and, and free and you had 
just a greater sense of peace, a greater sense of joy, but you've stepped away from that and you've shrunk back. And the Lord goes, I wanna give you wisdom to respond to the revelation that you have, to walk it out before me. And then finally, Lord, we just ask that you would seal this idea in our hearts of the working power of God, the working power to overcome resistance, overcome obstacles, overcome offense, that you would send a power that is greater than my spiritual dullness. You would send a power that's greater than my spiritual lukewarmness in you, my half-hearted devotion, my just, I'm kind of distracted by materialism. I'm kind of distracted and weighed down by different things. Lord, we ask for that power that raised Jesus from the dead to touch our hearts. In your name, Lord, we love you. We're gonna Thank you for tuning in to Sunday Sermon. For more information, service times, and free teaching resources, visit forerunnerchurch.com.